I'm Father Mitch Paquin, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred Word of God through the lens of the apostolic tradition. That is, tradition that goes back to the apostles and to our Lord Himself. Now, Lord, of course, we love having you become part of the show. You can do that by doing the same as these nice people have done, coming here and being in our live studio audience. Or you can call during the live broadcast on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the number you can call in if you're in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside of North America, you can still call, but the number is country code one Area code 205-271-2980. 205-271-2980. You can also send us your questions uh, or comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today on our show will show how Jesus taught his disciples that in order to be leaders, they must first be servants. And we'll also learn a little bit about Satan's desire to sift the apostles and their successors, the bishops, like wheat, because his goal is to destroy the church. So... Let's take a look at some of that in the Gospel of Luke. We are going through my book, Wheat and Tares, uh, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. And you can get that by going to EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com. The book is item number 81098, okay? All right, so let's take a look at this. We are dealing with the disciples disputing about their own greatness. We had looked at it earlier in the public ministry, um, and we see it again at the Last Supper in St. Luke, chapter 22, verse 24, where it says, a dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, it's interesting how they bring up their own question about which of us is the best, exactly as our Lord Jesus is talking to them about the betrayer. Judas is about to betray our Lord. He's still in the room. And he, like they, had just been ordained. And as a result, they change the subject. It's so uncomfortable for them, which is exactly what they had done whenever our Lord talked about his upcoming suffering 
and death and burial and resurrection. Whenever he brought that up during the public ministry, they would change the subject, usually, usually talking about their own importance. That's a very interesting defense. Well, we don't see that St. Luke lays out the arguments they gave. He doesn't, you know, it's sort of like my mom. You know, she really didn't care. But he said that, I know, but she said that she didn't really care. She's had the basic approach. I don't care who started it, you're all going to get it. And that settled things down quickly. Well, here too, St. Luke knows enough not to say, well, Peter could have said that I'm the rock and he was, and, and then you could go into all sorts of things about the greatness. He doesn't. But what he notices and pays close attention to, as we had to learn to do when I was a little kid, is pay attention to mom. In this case, it was pay attention to what our Lord Jesus said, not their petty arguments. And this is, by the way, a good principle for all of us. You know, a lot of times our arguments are uh, usually intense because the stakes are very small. That's a very common human reaction. When the stakes are small, the arguments get more intense. So what does our Lord say instead? He brings up the big issues. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves, for which is the greater, the one who sits at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this, first of all, is a response from our Lord very similar to what he had said when James and John had been arguing earlier in the gospel, saying, Lord, sit us one at your right and the other at your left hand when you come into your kingdom. So they were just trying to stop the argument amongst the others and just go right to Jesus and ask for a top place. And he to tell them, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Similarly here, we see that our Lord applies it again to this circumstance where he says, you know, I'm the one who's Lord here, and yet 
I am acting as one who serves while we are at table. So you have to learn from that example. That's the first thing. And this is exactly why Pope St. Gregory I, who was at the, he was Pope toward the end of the 6th century A.D., uh, in the five, late 580s and in the 590s, he took as title for himself a title that still is used by the popes, the servant of the servants of God, reminding all the bishops that they are servants and the pope is there to be the servant of those bishops who are also servants. So that title remains with the, the, the papacy to this day. And this is especially in regards to serving a table. This will have a big effect later on when priests are called, because they were, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's at the Last Supper when our Lord says the words, do this in remembrance of me that he is communicating to them that they are now ordained his priests, his first 12 bishops, in fact. And as such, they have to serve at table. They are to be the ones that present the Eucharist to the rest of the community, and that way they are to serve. He also mentions that at the end of their lives, which in the case of the apostles, the 11 apostles that stay faithful, it will be a life of service, evangelizing, and in the case of 10 of them, martyrdom. They'll all be executed for serving Jesus. Then he says, you will be seated on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That is something that becomes part of the imagery of the book of Revelation, that the apostles, that, that notice how many references there are to the 12 apostles. Of course, Judas will kill himself uh, later that day, that night, or the next day, I should say, and he'll be replaced by the Matthias. So they'll be the 12th, but they will be the 12 who judge the uh, different people, the, all the tribes of Israel. And then uh, this will be also followed by feasting at the Lord's table. We have seen in the gospels that our Lord compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And again, in the book of Revelation, we see that at the end of the world, that it is the wedding feast of the Lamb, his bride being the church. And after their labors and even after their torments and terror, sometimes absolutely horrible executions, things 
I hope nobody would ever do to an animal were done to these uh, apostles, like St. Bartholomew being skinned alive, you know, to, to, to kill him. Uh, horrible things that were done. They are promised that they will be able to feast with the Lord. So they'll, they'll finally have this authority to be part of judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and they will enter into the feast. Until then, while we keep that as something we look forward to, our task here on earth is to serve. So that's one of the things going on. Then we also see that this conversation opens up the way to another. And this is when our Lord Jesus predicts the denials by St. Peter. Now, the prediction of Peter's denials as well as the denials of Jesus are in all four Gospels. There aren't too many things that are in all four Gospels, but this is one of them. And so we see that after this discussion, Jesus turns his attention to St. Peter, but he uses his given name, Simon. The thing I mentioned, Simon was the most popular name among Jewish men at the, in the first century. We see that on the various graves, that that was the most common name. Just like we have names that become fashionable. Uh, when I was growing up, you didn't see um, many people named Jason or Jacob and a couple other names for boys or Isabella uh, and Sophia for girls. They became a bit more popular in the last couple of decades. Well, that's the same thing happened in the ancient world. At certain times, certain names become very popular. It's because the last of the Maccabee brothers to survive was the brother Simon. So, and he pretty much restored Israel's existence after the Greeks had tried to destroy it. So that's why it became so common a name. So um, he turns to Peter, who is clearly the leader of the apostles, even if he is impetuous. Uh, they turn to him and he, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So this, first of all, is a prayer by our Lord that continues on the Eucharist. You know, and it, it's no accident that after the, the consecration normally, uh, Eucharistic prayer one, the Roman rite is before the consecration, but normally after the consecration, there's a prayer for the Pope. You notice that? And for the other bishops. And this is an imitation of our Lord praying for Peter as well as for all the others. So that um, 
while this confirms Jesus, uh, Peter's leadership, he's also giving a warning and a mention of his own prayer that Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Now, what, do you, what are they talking about? Uh, when you grow wheat, uh, the, the wheat has a thinner than paper husk on it, and it's inedible. It's, it's cellulose. It's, it's gray, you know, like grass. So you, you have to get rid of that. Uh, so after the wheat has dried, you take all of the wheat and you put it on a threshing floor. And then what they would do is take a very heavy uh, chunk of wood. Usually it'd be a number of six by eight timbers latched to, you know, pulled together. And the farmer would stand on top of it to add weight, uh, maybe with a couple people, and they would just drag it over the wheat. Uh, an ox or an ass would drag it around around a circle. Uh, and that would separate the chaff from the wheat, but it's still there, right? So sifting like wheat is something they would do at the end of the day because about four o'clock every day, as the sun goes down and it starts to cool off, the wind kicks up. You take the wheat and the chaff in these large, very uh, shallow baskets and you just sort of throw them up. The chaff is so light, it just goes away. And throughout the Bible, this symbol of chaff is a symbol for sin. And notice here that when he says sift you like Greek, it's not you to Peter alone. Greek distinguishes between the you singular, which would be se, versus you plural, humas. So this is all the apostles are going to be sifted like wheat, and the chaff has to be sent away. This is the useless. It's not able to uh, bear fruit, and again, it's not easier, uh, it's not edible, so it's not something that can grow. And Satan is the one that wants to do this. He's in charge of the process. Um, but Jesus is ultimately going to be the, the judge. Remember, Satan in Hebrew, shatan, means adversary or accuser. And this gets picked up in other places like Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Satan is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them day and night. So often people hear a voice inside and they say, well, I've got this Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt or something or Christian guilt. Oftentimes that accusatory voice is one that is from the evil spirit. And he's trying to do that to us, to accuse us. And he wants to accuse them so that he can destroy the church. That is his goal. The accusatory voice is one that is meant to 
destroy the church, whereas the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin so that we repent. Satan keeps us in guilt. Jesus, our Lord, wants to purify the church and get the chaff out so that by purifying it, the wheat that can be used for growth and new wheat will survive, but the chaff will be separated out. And this very night, in the night of the Last Supper, there'll be that kind of sifting of wheat and chaff among the apostles. So this is a very important thing for all of us to consider. We have to take a little break. We'll come back in a minute and continue on with this passage. So please stay with us. to join EWTN in Indianapolis, Indiana next year. It'll be on July 17th to 24th for the National Eucharistic Revival. It's a movement to restore understanding and devotion to the Holy Eucharist here in the United States because it's been weakened quite a bit. And you can be part of this renewal. Now, if you're interested, you can go to EWTN.com slash Eucharist. EWTN.com slash Eucharist to learn more and receive a code for discounted registration at that conference in Indianapolis. It's a nice central location in the country. That's why they chose it. And there, if you're driving, there are lots and lots of uh, interstates that meet there. So it's a great place to, to, to get to almost anywhere in the country. All right, so um, this is where we see, uh, we've been talking about how our Lord is speaking about how Satan wants to sift the apostles like wheat from uh, and chaff, and that he'll do so in accusatory ways and use a variety of other uh, passions. This is one of the things that the evil spirit tends to do is use various passions. What we mean by passions are those feelings that we undergo. You know, there, there's uh, our own word passive is related to that, that is something that you have happened to you. And oftentimes passions include fear and uh, desire for acceptance and a wide variety of things that can be part of the passion, love for money, that certainly affected uh, Judas Iscariot. Uh, all of these different passions can be used by the evil one to sway us. 
and he wants to do that. And then after tempting us he and getting us to sin, his pattern is to accuse us. So that's a very typical thing. Now, Pope Saint John Paul was really uh, attached to this pass, uh, passage. He really uh, loved verse 32 because he knew that he would be tempted. And he loved that passage because he wanted Christ praying for him. He loved the fact that Christ was interceding for him, especially as Pope, uh, who's the successor of St. Peter. And he depended on that prayer of Christ so that he would be able to help sustain the other bishops as the evil one would try to sift them and tempt them as well. Um, there are a lot of trials that he had gone through. Remember, the, uh, he had to do slave labor for the occupying uh, German army after Poland was invaded in 39. He was sought by the Gestapo. They were looking for him to execute him when he was just starting to study for the priesthood in 1945. And then uh, he was under communism and stood up against communist leaders in Poland and elsewhere. And he just knew what it was like to have opposition, more than most of us would understand. And he also knew that Christ was the one that saw, saw him through these dangers. Remember, as the Nazis were looking for him in his apartment, he was all by himself. His, all his family members had died already. And he had gone down to the basement of the apartment building, and they just didn't think to go down there to look for him. For once, they were not thorough. And they didn't catch him, and he survived the war, obviously, and became pope. So this is something that all of us can look to our Lord praying for us to overcome these kind of temptations and being sifted. Now, we then go to the way that St. Peter responded to this in verse 33, Luke 22, verse 33, where Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now that's, he's got the words there. He wants to, oh, I'll be faithful. I'll do this. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. However, our Lord Jesus doesn't just take good intentions on face value. He goes to the core of the issue because he's able to read our hearts and minds. That's what it means to be God. God can know what's in our heart and in our mind better than we can. So he says in Luke 22, verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. So he's well aware. And again, in all four Gospels, 
we see that our Lord is well aware that this would happen. And uh, this is something that uh, Peter has to deal with. Now, knowing his weakness and knowing that his denials are coming, he also mentions that this was predicted in the Old Testament. So in Luke 22, verse 37, we read where Jesus says to Peter, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Quote, and he was reckoned with transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, this is a citation of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53 is a prediction that the Messiah would suffer. This is so poignant that in the year 85 AD, the rabbis meeting at the city of Jemnia would not allow Isaiah 53 to be read in the synagogue lectionary readings. They couldn't read it anymore. And this is one of the reasons why we see in Isaiah 53, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is a prophecy written about how the Messiah would bear the sin of many, even as he is counted among the transgressors. And this was written 570 years before Christ was crucified. Do you think that Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers knew that passage when they crucified two thieves, one on either side of Jesus? They had no clue of that. But there he was right in between the transgressors. And he, in dying in that way, he took our sins upon himself. This is an amazing thing. And it also talks about how um, he, Jesus was placing Peter's denials and our Lord's own suffering and death in the light of the coming resurrection. He knows that this is going to lead to something that is glorious. That's why he's, it mentions that he will, I will divide him a portion with the great. This is a reference to his resurrection from the dead, but he won't get to the resurrection until he is denied by Peter and dies among the sinners. His suffering would be due to the failure of his apostles, especially Judas, and the apostles to whom he had just given the priesthood. He just gave them the gift of the priesthood. But all that will work towards the salvation of the world. So Jesus put Peter's failure of faith, it's, it's going to come, and we'll see it, you know, as we get to the next uh, couple weeks. 
and that his failure of leadership will be part of this long-term plan of God, this plan of salvation. And this is something for all of us to consider. The fact that even knowing Peter would fail, but not getting rid of him, keeping him because that failure would turn to salvation, is something of hope for us. There's a hope for the grace of repentance for all of us. And partly because we're dealing with the issue of the sex abuse scandal that's gone on in the church over the last few decades, now that we've been coming out from that for the most part, we can see that the possibility of repentance for Peter, the apostles, and for the bishops and priests of today, this is a very important thing. That doesn't mean that we say, all right, if somebody abused children, they should be back in the public ministry. No, but they can repent and they can turn to Christ and at least do a life of penance. Uh, they may not be able to have the public ministry they once had, but they would be able to live a life of penance for their own sins and of doing penance as a way to pray for others. This is something that would be possible and all of us as Christians need to see that it is possible for there to be a true change of heart. Christ knew that it could happen for Peter and he knows it can happen for each of us, no matter how bad our sins are. That's the task that we have. All right, we'll stop there. We'll come back next week to continue uh, the end of the Last Supper. So let's go to some questions. We have, first of all, Rosemarie is on the phone. Hello, Rosemarie. What can we do for you? Oh, hi, Father Mitch. Um, I have a question regarding why the Jewish people were the chosen ones and why Mary has the 12 stars of the 12 tribes. I wanted to know why the division. What, why the what? The division between, <coughs> excuse me. That's I right. live on a farm and I have an allergy. Oh. Um, I wondered why the division between the accepted Jewish people and wanting them so much as compared to all the other people to include us. Rosemary, that's a very important question. First of all, when it's the people of Israel are chosen you see that choice going back to their ancestor, Abram, in Genesis chapter 12. He is chosen to become a blessing so that he can be a blessing for all the other families of nations on earth. That's the goal of the choice of Israel. And in fact, you see again a very key passage in Exodus 
chapter 19, I believe verses 5 and 6, where it speaks of how Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. They will intercede for the rest of the world, but our Lord calls them so that by forming them to believe in only the one God, they can become that blessing for the other nations. They become those priests for the other nations and offer sacrifices. And these promises and covenants are given to the people of Israel to prepare for the Messiah. Now, as Christians, we believe that the Messiah comes from Israel. He is the fulfillment of those promises and becomes the priest, that one true high priest from whom all blessing comes to the rest of the world. And we then are attached. And St. Paul uses this example that the people of Israel are like a cultivated olive tree. We, who come from a Gentile background, are branches of a wild olive tree that has been grafted on. I'm glad you live in farm country. You understand how you can graft from one tree to another and that the main tree will have a good effect on the branch because the sap will still come from the, the, the tree to that grafted branch. Well, we are grafted on to the people of Israel. And in fact, the church is oftentimes called the new Israel. Because, uh, th that we are united with Christ in baptism. We're made members of his mystical body. And as such, we are truly attached to Israel. And Our Lady, uh, well, again, notice in the book of Revelation, a couple things. One, there are 24 elders around the throne. The 12 elders of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the new and the old Israel together. And Our Lady has a crown of 12 stars as a symbol of the new Israel, that she is that crowning uh, person of the new Israel because as a member of Israel, the Messiah is conceived in her womb and born from her. So this is a very important set of elements. And that's why we, you know, there has been horrible history in the past of anti-Semitism. That has no place for us. And especially now, as we see a secular anti-Semitism rising, in particular from the left, from the non-believing left, people who don't, you know, are not people of faith, are moving toward an anti-Semitism. We have to stand with Jewish people or anybody else who is 
persecuted and harassed uh, and defend them and show our support for them. But we don't engage in anti-Semitism. Instead, we recognize the uh, need to show our unity with them <coughs> and how the church continues from them. That's very important. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute with more of your questions, emails, and comments, so please stay with us. First of all, I just want to remind you, please join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. And we will speak then with Daniel J. Mahoney to discuss the spiritual heroism of Venerable Yusuf Cardinal Minzenti, who stood firmly on his face, faith and embraced the cross amid beatings, imprisonment, and torture at the hands of the communist Hungarian government, uh, and also by basically being abandoned by the Vatican and the United States. Uh, he was on his own, but he stood firm with uh, our faith, with Christ, uh, against communist oppression. So I want to encourage that, okay? All right, let's go to a question from our studio first. Sir, where are you from? Bay City, Texas, down by Houston. All right. Victoria okay. Diocese. Yeah, it's just a bit south of Houston, right? A little bit. A little bit. About an hour and a half. Oh, I see. That's, that's nothing in Texas. Yeah, it was an easy drive. Yeah. <laughs> so what can we do for you today? Um, as we're listening today, you're talking about how uh, Satan is the one that wants to do the grinding and the sifting and the separating of the wheat. Mm -hmm. um, but then towards the end of the first series of the talk here, you said mm -hmm. that Christ wants to separate and clean up the church. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it sounded similar, and one was Christ mm -hmm. doing the work, and the other one was Satan doing the work. So mm -hmm. I'm a little confused there. Here's one of the things. First of all, it's going to be our Lord who has the chaff go off to the everlasting fire. That was the image that St. John the Baptist used for the chaff. But the wheat he will gather into his barn, a symbol of heaven. Mm -hmm. So our Lord is going to be the one who ultimately judges the wheat and the chaff. But if you think about Satan as doing this Kind of, again, this grinding and trying his temptations are what cause this difficulty for so many people. So he'll be the one to, to tempt us. Christ will be the one who judges us. And that will be, I think, one of the differences. Uh, his, Christ's judgment will be based on truth. Satan will try to tempt us with uh, especially guilt feelings. 
This is typical uh, of, you know, getting people to have guilt feelings and fear. That is the way he manipulates. And think of the way so many times our politicians or even the advertisers and some of the businesses so try to manipulate us with fear and guilt. If you don't do my policy or buy my product, bad things will happen to you. It, it, think of that as the way Satan speaks. <laughs> All right, we have uh, Morgan is on the phone. Morgan, where are you calling from? Uh, Marseilles, Illinois. Go, oh, good to have you here. And what can we do for you? I'm asking a question that my sister-in-law wants to know. She's a Baptist, mm -hmm. scripture only, and her pastor, a former Lutheran, uh -huh. wanted them to recite the Apostles' Creed. This made her very nervous. And she asked me, because I'm a Catholic, when the Apostles' Creed was put together, if there is any idea of a general date. Yeah, the Apostles' Creed are the various statements of faith that go back to the first century. So that's, that's back in the earliest uh, uh, years of the church, the first decades of the church. So it goes back to then. And all, you know, all of that, as a matter of fact, it's oftentimes called the Apostles' Creed because it's said to be basically from the apostles. They each contributed a part of it, an article of it. And I don't does your sister find the Apostles' Creed somehow incorrect or something? No, she just thinks that since it's not scriptural, she was nervous about the... Pastor wanted him to recite it. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, and she's a, see, in the Baptist church, they do not have any statements of faith, no, you know, like creeds. They don't, they don't have a creed. And in fact, I remember back maybe in the 80s, there was an argument at the uh, uh, Southern Baptist National Convention about whether or not they could even say that they believe in Scripture alone because that's an act of faith and they're not supposed to make those kind of statements of faith. So they were arguing about that. Um, but I, I don't know why they are concerned with that. Um, you need to have some norms. Now, one of the things you may want to do, I, I wrote a book, a Bible study on faith. And one of the things that I have in, in one section of that book is I go through the Nicene Creed, which is later, that's fourth century. Uh, but I go through that and show the Bible passages that are the basis for every single statement in the creed. And we use the creed uh, as a tool to help distinguish those who would be authentic Christians or those who would be imitation Christians. And I don't think 
there'd be anything in the Baptist church that they would disagree with it. They just don't like to make uh, creed statements. Uh, and I'm not sure how they came to that conclusion um, because that can be pretty useful. So, but take, have her take a look at that book and show that everything in the creed is right from the Word of God directly. So there should be no difficulty in it for her or any other, anybody else who's a Christian. Okay. Thank you, Morgan, for calling. All right, and then we have um, an email from Nancy in Sarasota, Florida. It says, Dear Father Paco, the liturgy of the Eucharist is the reason I've returned to the Catholic Church after 50 years in the dark. Understand that the host is made of bread. However, I have some concerns regarding the wine and more. At the Last Supper, our Lord did not say, do this or something similar to this in memory of me. How is receiving the host only keeping up with scripture and tradition? Also, you explained recently that at the Last Supper, Jesus ordained the disciples as priests to repeat the Eucharist. To this day, priests are the one consecrating the bread and wine. I'm uneasy about receiving communion from lay persons at Mass. Was it like that in the early centuries of the church? Nancy. All right, good. A couple things. First of all, we, the non-reception of the blood of Christ at Mass is something that was you know, done uh, in many places in the West um, because of the spread of plague. That was the concern. And you can imagine, as people all receive from one cup, that you, know, you can easily pass on various uh, bacteria and viruses. Secondly, um, uh, you have to keep in mind that both the body and blood are the whole person of Christ. The host is not a part of Christ, and his precious blood at Mass is not a part of Christ. You receive the whole person of Christ. If you receive only the precious blood, as I've had to do for some people who could not swallow anything solid, I gave them the precious blood. They could, they could receive the precious blood. They still get the whole Christ. That's what's key there. And you see the whole Christ in, if you receive only uh, in the form of the, the host. Now, you can do a couple things. Uh, if you live near, say, a Byzantine church or a uh, Maronite church, you receive the body and blood uh, at, uh, at the Mass every time. They always receive uh, the, that the precious, uh, the, the body of Christ is either dipped into the precious blood in the Maronites or in the Byzantines, it, it's in a form uh, that, that it's together, it's soaked in it. So you receive both. Um, and they don't drink from the cup, but they do distribute it both ways. You can do that. And that is an option. And that's an option in the West, too, to intinct, to, to dip the body of Christ into it. That can be done. Um, as far as receiving communion from a lay person, it remains the body of Christ, whether it's in the hands of a lay person or the hands of a priest. It's still the body of Christ. If you prefer to receive from a priest, I understand. 
Uh, but it does not cease being the body and blood of Christ when it's in the hands of the laity. So either one of those would be fine. Okay. All right. And then I have another one here from Brennan. That's interesting. Recently, the Holy See condemned the desecration of holy objects, referring to an incident of burning the Quran in Sweden. How is the Quran a holy object? You know, A, it is something to be treated with respect by us. We would disagree with it. I would very much disagree with what's in the Quran. For instance, in Surah 4, verse 157, it says that Jesus did not die on the cross. I disagree. And a number of other things uh, that you can go through. But it is revered by Muslims and you show respect. I wouldn't consider it uh, you know, so sacred for us, but I show respect to Muslims who do consider it as the word of God handed to them. So you show honor and respect people, and that's a very important thing to, to do. But you, I don't believe, and there are some parts you can say, okay, that's true, but other parts, no. One thing is true, I've run out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as always, this network is brought to you by you as we come up to our 42nd year of your support by keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And we can pay our bills too. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.